Welcome to the Attentive Heart Podcast, where we explore how an integration of mind, body, and spirit make us whole and enable us to become more compassionate to ourselves and to others. I'm your host, John Gribwich, and today my guest is Sebastian. So Sebastian, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, and what is occupying your time these days? Oh, thanks for having me on, John. It's uh, it's always great to see you uh, and to to find a way to collaborate. Um, so my name is Sebastian Gomes. Um, I'm a Canadian citizen, actually, and uh, my current job is um, overseeing the audio and video productions at America Media, which is the your your audience will know the long-standing Jesuit Review published uh, out of New York City. So um, I've been doing that for four years, but I have about a ten-year career doing Catholic media, initially for Salt and Light Media in Toronto, Canada. So the work that I do is, uh, you know, overseeing a lot of different podcast productions, different videos here and there, and spending a lot of time following Catholic news, which is, you know, more than a full-time job. Yeah. Okay. There's so much to unpack just with that based on the space that you're in. So, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time with people who are in the Catholic media world, but uh, I, I'm always curious as to what brought you to that. So maybe maybe just begin as early as you want to begin. Like, what was your experience with, say, Catholicism, and and how did it lead you on this uh, path to kind of professionally working for the organization? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting story. You know, I was raised in a in a household, a Catholic household, where my parents were both um, very committed, very engaged Catholics. Um, really committed to issues of social justice, um, regular, you know, mass attendance, being part of the communities wherever we lived. Um, and, you know, I was a pretty ordinary kid. I just loved sports, the usual things. Um, I was a decent student, but nothing special. Um, and then when it came time to go to college, um, I was a pretty serious soccer player. So I, I wanted to to go to school in the United States because in Canada, you know, nobody thinks, oh, let me go to Canada to play soccer. It's more, <laughs> more hockey or lacrosse or, you know, another sport. But mm -hmm. um, I had the opportunity to uh, visit St. John's University, which is in Collegeville, Minnesota, pretty well-known Benedictine University. Sure. Um, loved it when I went down there for a visit, had a really good relationship with the soccer coach. Long story short, it, the possibility of going there opened up for me. Um, and so, you know, I packed up and, and left, but it was that immersive experience with the Benedictines in a liberal arts education at a small Catholic college in central Minnesota, um, that really got me thinking more critically about the role of faith in my life and, and the questions that I felt I needed to ask and try to grapple with. And, um, it was really a leap of faith. You know, I think I got to my, my sophomore year. I wasn't totally sure still what I wanted to do, um, but I had met some extraordinary people of faith who were also very intelligent. You know, people who, you know, when you talk to them, you just say, well, there's something here. And, you know, if you're living, if you're living a, a life of faith or, you're, you know, a, a kind of lukewarm or you're just kind of, you know, it's there, it's in you, but you're not totally committed to it. There's something very compelling, right? About, about a witness, about somebody who is much smarter than you, has much right. more life experience than you, can see things so much clearer than you. And also, you know, this is this faith dimension is a big part of their life. So I was I was very compelled um, uh, by, you know, by those people to kind of ask some of these deeper questions. And I took a leap of faith and jumped into theology, ended up studying theology as my undergraduate uh, degree. And then I stayed on at St. John's for a few more years to do a graduate degree in church history. So 
history was fascinating to me. I always thought I would teach. Um, I never really wanted to be a scholar. As I said before, I was never, you know, a real academic um, in, in the bookie sense. Um, but I always thought I would teach because, you know, I, I was I was good with people. I was, you know, good socially with people. I liked the topics that I was like studying and reading about. Um, and I thought if I can share some of this enthusiasm with people, that would be great. And then I moved back to Canada after graduate school and working at St. John's for a couple of years. And uh, I met with uh, a priest, Father Thomas Rosica, who's a, mm -hmm. of the Congregation of St. Basil, small religious order that was founded in France. Um, and he was at the time running Salt and Light Media, which was a national Catholic broadcaster and media organization. And um, that organization came about after the World Youth Day in 2002, which was the last World Youth Day that John Paul II uh, was at before he died in 2005. Mm. And Tom, you know, surrounded himself with some of the younger people who had volunteered at that World Youth Day to start this media company. So when he and I met, it was very providential. He said, you know, would you ever consider working here? And I said, I don't really know anything about media. And he laughed and he said, well, neither do I. I'm, you know, my background's in scripture scholarship, but here we are. Right. So another leap of faith in a way. And then, you know, my career, this was 2012 when I started. And almost immediately when I started, some really big things started happening in the church. We had the Synod on the New Evangelization in, the, in October of 2012, which was, which was really a big moment. It was the last Synod under Pope Benedict. A few months later, he resigned. I worked with Tom together at the Holy See Press Office during the papal transition in 2013. And so my career has like basically run parallel to Pope Francis's pontificate. Mm -hmm. And I've been able, I've been able to say, and I've been able to see and experience some, some extraordinary stuff, some extraordinary kind of behind the scenes stuff yeah. in, in the life of the church. So, you know, here we are in 10 years after Pope Francis and uh, still going strong. Yeah. That, wow. But first of all, I didn't realize there, there's some, a lot of um, parallels uh, to, to your um, story and mine. I mean, I studied history as an undergrad and theology, so I had a love for both history and theology. Um, and I was at the World Youth Day in uh, 2002 with oh, wow. John Paul II. I actually wasn't. I was oh, 17 okay. at the time, so I felt okay. like I was kind of young to be going, okay. you know. But I also, it was <laughs> just where I was in my life, where I just didn't, it, it wasn't that important to me, you know. Sure. That came later. Sure. But how did you meet Tom? Was there, was there someone who thought that you'd be both good to meet? I mean, it's in, I, like, I find that these encounters are, are, are so interesting because they totally changed the course of, of how, where our life is going. So how did that totally. come about? Yeah. So he was, I mean, a known figure in Toronto in the church in Canada mm -hmm. at the time. Um, I was, I had moved back to Toronto I wanted to teach and his religious order, the, the Congregation of St. Basil is a teaching order. So they run mm -hmm. universities and stuff like that. St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto is a famous one. Um, so I, I knew moving to a, a new city, even though, you know, Toronto was, was where I was born. I didn't grow up there, but I was born in Toronto. So moving back to Toronto, I didn't know a lot of people. It was more of a networking thing. So I was reaching out to a whole bunch of different people just to kind of get the lay of the land. And when I first like talked to him, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about working at something like, uh, but we talked, as I said, for about 10 minutes and he just listened to me. I was, I don't know, I was talking about like Vatican II or whatever. And I think he just looked at this like young lay person who was like passionate about Vatican II and was like, this is good. <laughs> we should, yeah. we should run with this. So he, he just, he offered me a job on the spot. I mean, it, I had to think about it over the, the Christmas break, but, um, 
you know, I, I, I took it and in a, in a sense, I just haven't looked back. Yeah. You know, on this particular podcast, I don't usually get into like the, um, the nitty gritty of, uh, inter church types of things, but I think it's pretty fascinating to talk about that. Maybe this with you, especially when you talk about how here you are talking to this pretty well-known priest at the time about Vatican II, where you were in your life. I mean, what did the Second Vatican Council really mean to you? That's that seemed, that's not something that a lot of people, I think, are thinking about um, unless you're really into the weeds of church stuff. But like for people who may not be in the weeds of the church stuff, um, why was your um, excitement over the Second Vatican Council kind of really important to you uh, in so much that it attracted this priest who saw something in you? I realized over the course of my education at St. John's with the with the Benedictines that the theology that I was introduced to was was really steeped in the kind of Vatican II lens. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those things that you like when you're going through it, you might not realize it, you know, like you're and then when you get out of it, you can look back and say like, yeah, this was clearly, you know, uh, an important interpretive key to like understanding all the theology and history that I was that I was uh, you know working on. Um, and I think what that experience did, like the the experience of doing theology in an academic setting like that, it's shown a light on my like childhood and, you know, and like how my family lived its Catholic faith and the things that they were interested in and which was which was very much um, worldly in the best sense. I mean, being concerned about the world, you know, and I think when at its core, if you look at, you know, Vatican II, it was very much we can't just be removed from the world. It was kind of a, a, a recommitment based on the gospel, you know, to say we had to be concerned about this world too. And the church has something to say, something beautiful to say. It also has to listen. It has to be a partner in dialogue. It has to be a, you know, a vehicle for reconciliation. And, you know, if you're, if you kind of follow the news and I was in a family that I always watch the, you know, every night we would watch the mm-hmm. news and we would watch, you know, three different types of broadcasts of the news. So we kind of yeah. knew what was going on. So it was very much, you know, the gospel in one hand and the newspaper in the other uh, type of family uh, upbringing. So those seeds are, all, I mean, and then when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, that wasn't that important to me, but in hindsight, right, those are seeds that are eventually over time, if they're watered by, you know, deeper theological reflection or, you know, a broader experience of the universal church, like I had with Tom working at Salt and Light, it, it, you kind of see different building blocks that, um, uh, you know, paint a bigger picture. And and I just think Vatican II is very much at the center of that. Like, I don't know, I, I don't know what kind of Catholic I would be if I would be Catholic, if it weren't for the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, as you're speaking, I mean, so many things that you've said so far, like really resonate with my own experience, especially like when I was in college and I met professors of theology who were just brilliant people. And, yeah. um, you know, you knew like, okay, well, yeah, the, 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 the church, the faith must mean something if someone who's so smart has it so much in, in, incorporated into who they are. And that whole sense of the Second Vatican Council playing this kind of very, um, you know, in, intrinsic role in your faith development. I mean, I went to a, I guess, a poster um, child parish of uh, Vatican II um, because it was a newer structure. It was built in 1982. Um, there was, you know, uh, the folk choir. There was liturgical dance. 
but there was also uh, everything that you could connect to the tradition of the church too. Eucharist adoration, uh, there were prayers in Latin, strong Marian devotion, um, but there was also the charismatic movement and there was Bible studies and there were things that were really trying to make touch points with people in other areas of their life. And, uh, you know, growing up in that, that environment, that's all I knew of the church. Like I didn't think of it like in any other way. I, it like uh, the traditional idea of the church, let's say, um, like from the so-called like Bing Crosby days. I mean, that was not anything about my experience. And plus the, the religious sisters I had at the time, I thought were kind of hip in the best sense of the word. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, they played guitar, they were, you know, they were that kind of stuff. And that that's actually what got me involved in music and things like that. So like, I always had this very positive um, view of the church and I didn't even understand things as being, oh, that's really Vatican II or that's really conservative or however you want to look at it. Um, it wasn't so much later in my life where I was like, oh, I didn't realize that there was all these different camps in the church and they're all like almost almost like got opposed to each other. I mean, it was very traumatic at first because I could not understand how that could be, but then I got used to it. And then I was also then thrown into a place of thinking, well, where do I really stand on, on all these things? And I don't know if that's something that you had to nav navigate through as well. Um, being from being a Vatican II Catholic, um, do you feel that there's there's always going to there's always this kind of um, way that you have to kind of understand what that council really means and what it doesn't mean and where you are within say um, the the church given all the different various expressions of it did you was there a time where you felt like oh i got to start making decisions as to what of what type of catholic i'm going to be or or what that what that might mean for me mm, yeah that's a good question i think one thing you said i'll just touch on quick quickly is having a positive experience of the church when you're younger like mm -hmm. same thing with me so like my entire life as a you know a, a public catholic i mean working in media and stuff like that um like so much of it comes from key moments when I was younger, where the church at large, you know, everybody, you know, the people of God, you know, didn't screw, didn't screw it up with me. Mm -hmm. And a yeah. lot of people's experience is, a, is an experience of screw up, right? Yeah, people exactly. in my class, I mean, you know, to the extremes, right? In cases of abuse and things like that. But for most people, um, it, it's a question that they have. That's a very legitimate question. That's not answered, right? It's, yeah it's a, a teacher or a person who in authority who is extremely rude or judgmental, mm -hmm. uh, or, or whatever it is, you know, in other words, it's all these things that are like not associated with the gospel that people experience in the church. And that can, that's very formative in those years. So I always say like my, my positive experience of the church is, is a great gift, but it's also very unique, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I always felt like as a younger person, you meant, you know, talking about Vatican II, being passionate about Vatican II, you know, focusing on the positive things, I, it was you're almost like alone as a younger person, you know, yeah. especially now because a lot of younger people, you know, they don't even know what Vatican II is or they're suspicious of Vatican II is sure. like a, a growing trend. Sure. But as a young person, a young lay person who didn't feel, you know, in my case, didn't feel a vocational call to the priesthood or to the monastery. Um, to be passionate about Vatican II, mm -hmm. you know, and then wanting to be like you're saying in those traditional Catholic spaces and doing traditional Catholic things, but infused with this Vatican II energy, 
that could be very lonely, you know? Oh, yeah, t terribly. I mean, I just remember uh, in high school running down into Kensington in Philadelphia and, and working with the Franciscans on their their soup line and, and just kind of really working in the streets. And then, you know, coming back and having Eucharist adoration and praying the rosary and charismatic prayer. And then for some reason, I, I quickly realized like, oh, the same people aren't in the same places. And I'm like, that's interesting. But like, I didn't really think there was any like opposition. Um, and I'm not saying that people were really, you know, antagonistic. I, I'm not saying that, but I, I quickly realized like, oh, I really like kind of being in lots of different places and liking to uh, see what's what 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 of me is found there. And but a lot of times, yeah, when you're doing that, you start to kind of realize like, oh, I'm going to be kind of by myself wherever I go, because there's this other part of me that the people I'm with, even though we're doing church stuff, don't fully get. I don't know if that if that relates you know, totally, to you. Totally. You know? And I, I think you like a, a healthy way that I've come to you know my own self-understanding on this is I actually think I'm a very traditional Catholic mm -hmm. because yeah. I think Vatican II is extremely traditional, traditional yeah. in the best sense, right? That it is totally rooted in the history and the authentic revelation, you know, in Jesus and in the early church in particular, you yes. know? So we throw around words like, you know, traditional or this, and because you and I are students of history or were students of history, you know, mm -hmm. it, you know, when we went to school, um, you know that you have to be a little bit more precise when you say that, because what do you mean when you say like, you want to go back to something, right. you know, because Vatican II went back to the very beginning in many ways. Yeah. And that's kind of the constant task of reform in the church is to, is to always make sure that whatever we're doing in, in the current moment is rooted in the first moment, the first moments. Right. And yeah. so, and, and Vatican II clearly did. And when, when you do that authentically and you're truly open to God, you know, working in the world, it's not some closed door. Uh, it gives you enormous freedom and consolation. And so one of the great sort of signs of vindication of Vatican II is the bishops who came out of there who were totally changed by it. Right. And, mm -hmm. but changed by it because they knew it was an authentic experience of, mm -hmm. of God working through the church. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and they were liberated because of that in a way. I mean, they, they came back to all the, their different countries and did some extraordinary things, you know, in, in Canada, they started an organization called development and peace, which is like Caritas Canada, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and immediately put lay people in charge of it because there was this great impulse to recognize the vocation of lay people in the world, you know, Gaudium et Spes. And that organization has done extraordinary work, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, in, in living out the gospel through service of others, empowering others, people, especially in the global South, you know, so it's, there, there were moments that was a particular moment, a particular powerful moment. You know, John the 23rd famously was hoping and praying that it would be a kind of a new Pentecost. And I think in so many ways it was. One thing I, um, I just like to unpack with you more, Sebastian, is like uh, you do a, a fair amount of writing, uh, not just doing news, but you, you write reflections a lot. And I, I read them and give us this day. You write them for America. And you always and write to me. I do because I'm actually usually I'm, I'm always moved by them. I mean, because I'm thinking, oh, that's that's a great insight. Um, so when I when I see that, um, 
I'm thinking, okay, there, there must be some type of uh, prayer life you have or some type of routine of how you kind of interact with the scripture in order mm -hmm. to write that way. I, I don't, because I don't think it's just coming from some type of academic place. It's maybe actually almost the opposite of that. Uh, it seems to be coming from a very personal space. So what's that, what's a process like that for you? Like if you're given something to write about or, or something that you're, you're going to do um, a reflection on based on scripture. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to plug our scripture reflections. Yeah, so you can, <laughs> definitely. I love them. You can become, you can I become a digital day. subscriber and you get a scripture <laughs> reflection every day. So yeah. I, yeah, I contribute to those, you yeah. know, our staff and our contributing writers do those. So I have, I don't know, I have one maybe like once a month or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, no, they're great. You know, I, as I said, I do mostly audio and video work and, you know, and it's a management position. So like I work with, under, with a team underneath me to produce that content, but this is a, a small, but very important part of my life and vocation, I think in Catholic media. Um, and I really appreciate it. I've always liked writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been fascinated by scripture study. That was part of my, you know, theo theology degree. Um, and it's like a whole world that onto itself that you open up and it just can completely, uh, you know, transform the way that you engage with, with the scriptures. But I think, you know, it's not a particular scriptural um, interpretation that I follow. I would say the key kind of underlying spiritual impulse in me is um, that the church always has to be a little bit more expansive and a little bit more inclusive. You know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. when I approach a scripture, I I often laugh reading my own scripture reflections back to myself because I see like, I feel like I'm saying the same things over and over and over yeah. again, which means sure. that I'm sort of preoccupied with the same things. Yep. But if you ask me to identify that thing, I would say when I look at the church and how people talk about the church and how people engage as Catholics, the one thing we can never have enough of is to like expand you know, the arms of the church a little bit more, mm -hmm. you know, because, because God, our understanding of God, our understanding in time about who Jesus was, is always expanding. It's always building on getting, you know, that's why like John's famous line from the opening of, uh, you know, of the council that the, the deposit of faith, the doctrine is one thing and the way that which we in, interpret it, you know, is, is another um, like we have the teaching, we have the things that we kind of hold on to, but we have to kind of change and evolve and broaden our perspective. And, and that's very much how God has worked in my own life. It's always been, you know, a broadening movement. Mm -hmm. Um, the great moments of spiritual insight for me, which are, as you know, few and far between, <laughs> you know, that's why we, we mm -hmm. like the mystics because like, sure. they're so brutally honest about yeah. like how fleeting those moments can be and how rare they can be, but, but spending your life, like trying to just put yourself in a position of detachment to let God work on you at that level. Mm -hmm. But, but those few moments that I can, you know, reflect back on, they were always, it's always like, I saw the world a little bit clearer. I, the, the world was a little bit bigger. The church was a bit bigger. The church was a little bit more understanding. It was a little bit more flexible. It was a little bit more inclusive. So that type of sentiment is what typically comes out in the scripture reflection that I write. So I, I want to talk about, I think this is the last one you wrote for. It was Monday for the second week of Advent. And I loved how you began it. You said, 
Um, I don't know about you, but I'm, I admit I'm, I'm skeptical of arguments for Christian, Christianity based on Jesus' he- healing miracles. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, amen to that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like, geez, I mean, if anything, like, if Jesus is doing healings, that's all fine and good in the moment, but all these poor people are going to have to suffer in some other way before they die, most likely. You know, So it's like, <laughs> sometimes we get obsessed about, like, the, the moment in time of, like, Jesus will, will do anything miraculous or just the emphasis on miracles as being something that's almost um, always going to be happening. And that will always convince you that God is real. That is not really my way of understanding my encounter with, with, with Christ, but I like the um, way you ended it. Um, you said, you know, if I'm skeptical of arguments for Christianity based on Jesus's physical healing miracles, I'm a firm believer in arguments that look at the deeper realities that move Jesus to perform them. Jesus clearly wants us to encounter and be transformed by God's mercy. That means not only that he's attentive to the many ways in which we are struggling and in need, but also, as Luke tells us, Jesus affirms and takes great joy in the humble expressions of faith we sinful creatures can muster. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot there to unpack. I feel like I, I sometimes I want to do a lexio, like a meditation on your reflections. But wow. what, when you when you talk about like takes great joy in the humble expressions of faith, wh- what have been like some humble expressions of faith for you personally, or that you've seen, you know, from from your perch, so to speak, in the world of Catholic media, that that brings this scripture to life for you that you know because you're talking about really in this particular story the guy who's paralyzed and his friends who break into the to the house where jesus is speaking by coming in on him on the roof (laughs) through the roof yeah (laughs) you know like those are pretty humble expressions of faith or maybe they're not so humble in some ways too but but what what do what do you what does that mean to you um, about jesus taking great joy in humble expressions of faith Yeah, I think, you know, the the big challenge with like reading the Gospels for me is to be able to read them again for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, like we get so used to the stories that like we could probably recite them in many cases. Right. And I don't know, it's just the repetition of things slowly takes away kind of some of the some of the edge of it. But in my like reading of scripture, the time that I spent reading scripture, reflecting on it when I'm writing about it or, you know, trying to apply it in my own life, the picture that you get of Jesus, especially when he's like healing people, um, you know, in, in his public ministry, the different thing, the people, how he's talking to people, that thread of like, in, like taking great joy in somebody being liberated or somebody being healed or somebody showing a small gesture is like is like everywhere you know yeah and like the key thing for me is he never says i'm here to save you you know thank Mm -hmm. goodness i was here you poor (laughs) wretched soul otherwise you'd be completely lost he he always says and he says in this story too you know your faith has saved you like Mm -hmm. you deserve some credit for the little gesture that you made Mm -hmm. to you know in the trust that you have in God and in something bigger than yourself. And for me, like that trust in God is like, it's, it's a perpetual little reminder to like 
work on being a more liberated person, like a freer person. And that is the hardest thing about being a Christian in my experience. You can recite the catechism, you can recite the gospel passages, but like the interior work. And again, I mentioned the mystics and I know because you love the mystics. Sure. The interior work um, is the hardest, right? I was told early on the long, I, I think this is a famous theologian who's, who said this, I can't remember who it was that the, the longest journey is from the head to the heart. Yeah. You know, so that is so, so true about theology and about living as a Christian in the world today, because there's so many resources and we have so much access to the theology, to the teachings, to the documents of Vatican II, to the catechism, to, you know, Francis, you know, his motto proprio and whatever, right. Uh, traditionis custodis, right. Whatever right, it right. is, like you sure. can study and like learn and read about all these things, but ultimately like, what are all these things for? It's for this interior transformation and the stories in the new Testament is the new Testament, is such a stunning, beautiful picture of Jesus because it presents with you these examples one after the other of these special moments between Jesus and someone else where they are liberated in one way, shape, or form. And he's never patronizing about it. He's never condescending about it. And he's always very encouraging, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying to encourage it, take, a, take another little step. And he's, and he's um, praising people for the little steps that they can take. And, th- and those lead to the transformations that, you know, change people's lives forever. You sure. know, like, like the woman who comes into Simon's house and washes his feet with her tears like it's such a powerful story and everybody is looking at her and judging her for being a sinner a public sinner jesus knows she's a public sinner yeah but she shows this great act of love to him and it's it's almost like it like love builds on love and mercy builds on mercy and i feel like jesus was just all about trying to compound mercy in the world yeah i I cannot agree more i mean and i and i feel like i've experienced that in so many different ways by receiving the mercy of Jesus through the mercy of others. Um, you know, as you were saying there, you know, when, when I was studying theology, and I, I have to say, I guess I'm still always studying theology too. I'm, I'm always, you never stop in, being a theology student. Once no, you enter that door, <laughs> exactly. That's like, a lifelong you know, journey. How many books can I read this week? You know, if I could, you know I mean? But like, uh, it is interesting uh, where the more you start to um, ingest, or if there's a certain type of, let's just say, a, a particular theological school of thought that you start to really get into, like, for example, I really, um, you know, through college, the Communio school was a big thing, you know, and, and just, and it was, you know, a byproduct of Vatican II. And so that was it. But the danger was also that the more I was becoming more confident in my knowledge and awareness of what I was learning, it actually uh, inhibited my freedom because at that point I was thinking, okay, well, am I allowed to be open to this or am I allowed to think this way? Or am I allowed to think that God may work in a different way here? Um, and and so like sometimes the head stuff can, um, can actually prevent us from being free to be, uh, not just loosey goosey with anything, but really to be able to see that, oh, but this is providing a very firm foundation to give you the freedom to see how the spirit works from this moment in time moving forward as well. 
Um, and when you said earlier about how you're a traditionalist, I feel the same way because the, the thing about tradition is that it is the foundation for you to build uh, the house, so to speak, or to, that gives you the ability to go in any space or to be with any person and realize that you will encounter Jesus Christ in that person, especially the person who seems to be, uh, you know, the most blasphemous uh, against Jesus. Uh, like, you know, I often try to say this even with my students. I'm like, if a person is breathing, if you're breathing, uh, you're meant to be here. Uh, you know, that's Christ as far as I'm concerned. Um, and just because of the person maybe not recognize that or think that or feel that uh, the gift of faith that, that I've been given, you know, propels me to think like, I can't think anything other than the fact that Christ is in this person who's doing horrible, despicable things. But then the cross itself and the crucifixion is a horrible and despicable thing. And mm -hmm. that's the fullness of Christ there. I mean, I don't know if that resonates with you or how you, because um, when you're talking about this expansiveness, that that's what, that's where I kind of went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think, yeah, I, I just find that the New Testament work, the New Testament portraits of Jesus um, are just so rich and uh, penetrating about the human condition, mm -hmm. you know? So it's not that like that Jesus, when he was walking around, like I, this, is, this is my own reading of it. So I don't see Jesus as like walking around as like, like God, fully God, knowing everything in every single moment and like having control in every single moment. And like, it's a very, that's, that's like totally not the image that I get when I, when I read uh, about Jesus, mm -hmm. I think like reflecting on my own personal experience of life and trying to be attentive to what's happening in the world, as we talked about earlier, to see how complex and like nuanced things are. And like what you're saying, there's there's tremendous good and there can be tremendous bad in, in the same person or in the same situation. Sure. Uh, and then, and then you go to the, you take that experience of reality to the new Testament and you see the evangelist telling you that, that this person, Jesus understood that complexity, you know, yeah. and, and knows this nuance and knows the human heart at such a penetrating kind of level um, that it's, it's, it sort of overwhelms you at first. Like that's kind of like, like the, the faith that I have is kind of comes from that where I say, wow, this is really a tradition and an experience that gets me like at my deepest, deepest core as a human being mm -hmm. with all of the, 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 the complexity, the nuance, the black and the white and the gray, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's so cool to hear because, I mean, like in the space that you're in, in Catholic media, uh, that's exactly what I would think you're always kind of confronted with. Like, you know, all these different <laughs> sides, the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, how do A lot you... of ugly these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like how like I know I have to kind of make it a practice to make sure I don't read too much of church news. Um and that's not any disservice to your profession. It's just that, like, I don't know if this is very healthy for me to be constantly listening to people either complain or be worried about this or calling this person out or showing how this is dangerous. Like, uh, that, that's that because that's that's like a burden to kind of bear when you're feeling like, oh my gosh, all these voices need to be heard because. 
they're either protecting us or they're pushing us to do something that we have to do. Um, well, how do you bring, you know, what you're just talking about, having this kind of contemplative mystical gaze upon the situations, upon the players, um, in all these stories that, that are constantly going through your desk, on your desk, like, how do you navigate that? Like, cause I mean, I don't think I do it very well. So like, is there, <laughs> are there practices that you have learned to do that or? Um, I mean, I, I don't have like a huge social media following or presence, you know, even though I'm out there and I'm, I'm happy to, you know, be on a podcast or host a show or do a video or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't force it on people. Um, I don't engage in a lot of the back and forth type of conversations that are really not spiritually healthy. Uh, the one, the stuff that you're talking about. Um, so I observe a lot more than I kind of speak. I listen a lot more than I speak. Um, I think that's really important. I mean, no matter who you are, it's just, it's okay not to feel like you have to have an opinion or you have mm -hmm. to take a side in a particular uh, debate. And I actually think in a very small way that can be quite liberating, like that can help with detachment, right? Because we, we often feel, especially today with social media and stuff, we feel an impulse to um, immediately align ourselves with the, the team that's right, the team mm -hmm. that we think is right, mm -hmm. you know? Because everything is kind of bifurcated. Everything is like this this dualistic world where it's like all this or all that, and there's very little room in between. Mm -hmm. And so I think like just saying, I'm not going to engage. Let me just pull back and let me let that person who's saying something that I really disagree with just say that thing. <laughs> and that, right. you know, that's, that's a really important thing to be able to do. So det detach yourself from the impulse to have to respond to everything. And then I think like, you know, if you're serious about your faith, um, you have to presume goodness, you know, mm -hmm. like even when it's things seemingly are not good or the person that you're dialoguing with that you feel like is this terrible sinner or this person who is like completely on a different planet from you in terms of how they understand something or they're totally wrong and in error, um, you know, I think you have to like the way that you were talking about just a, a person who's like living and breathing and seeing Christ in that person. That's kind of the lens you have to bring to this. And when you when you start from there, you can say to yourself, okay, I don't know everything that's going on behind the scenes here with this, but you know, if it's not a bot who's trolling you, right. <laughs> it's a person on the other side, right? It's a living, <laughs> breathing person. Right. And there's something to say about you know, the, the Ignatian kind of presupposition, like the presume the best case scenario until, you know, you know, you, you have to think about it in a different way. And so I think that's important because otherwise you can, you can quickly become a very angry, toxic person on the inside. So I think like the Christian disposition, and this is, I've always tried to remind myself of this is like, presume goodness, you know, think hopeful, what's the best possible light that we could shine on this, um, situation. Um, and how are, and how, how is what my engagement on this matter, how is it like helping, you know, long-term, how is it like witnessing to love, to mercy, to Jesus, or how is mm -hmm. it detracting from that? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's very, it's very subtle, you know, it's very subtle things in internally that we have to deal with in each of these little things. And I mean, I don't do it 
<laughs> perfectly by any means, but right. those are some of the things that are going through my mind. Yeah. Do you, do you carve a particular time for prayer or meditation or is there uh, practices that you have or a routine of any sort to kind of get you in that headspace before you walk into the office or before you look at your email? Yeah, I like taking time a little bit in the morning and uh, a little bit at night. Um, I find my days like super crazy and hectic. Sure. And it's like, I don't know. I If, if I'm if I'm uh, in the office, sometimes we have uh, mass together as a staff, which is which is always very nice to be able to do. Um, but I tried to, you know, simple prayers. Um, a spiritual director once told me the best advice I've ever had regarding prayer life, which is pray as you can, not as you can't, mm -hmm. you know, so don't yeah. presume that like, because, you know, your parents gave you this way of praying or your community gives you this way of praying or the Pope gives you this way of praying. Sure. That's the way that you have to pray, right? It's more, it's much more important. I've learned to pay attention to like we were talking about before, like little moments of God touching you and recognizing that that's a real moment and there's something there. So being able to kind of reflect on that and then kind of peeling the layers back. Okay. What was, you know, what did I, what did I do to, to put myself in that position where I was receptive to God working in my life in that way? So for me, it's been like, it's, it's quiet. I mean, I think I kind of, I got this, I think from the Benedictines without knowing I was getting it from the Benedictines, mm -hmm. but like, you know, kind of a monastic way of, of, of living where you take quiet time, um, also doing things that are very menial, um, but very in a quiet way, you know? Mm -hmm. So I oftentimes, I find it easiest for me to, um, kind of talk to Jesus when I'm doing, like, I'm like cooking, you know, mm -hmm. or I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm shining my, uh, silverware, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, I don't, <laughs> wow, you shine your silverware. That's pretty I do impressive. have, nice. so yeah, we, I have this really old <laughs> set of silverware from my mom's side of the family that wow, it's like, cool. you know, it needs to be polished. Right. But it's, wow. so it's this thing that's it's repetitive. Neat. It's, mm -hmm. it's aura at labora, right. Sure. As the, as the I, I get Benedictine it. Benedictine yeah. say, totally. and yeah, you know this cause you love yeah. the monastic life too. Yeah. Um, and, but there's something about that where, you know, you're, you're making progress on something in a really tangible way. Mm -hmm. And somehow that running parallel to your thought and your prayer about just like trying to be a little bit closer to Jesus or a little bit more open or a little bit more inclusive or a little bit more this or a little bit more that those two things really do kind of go hand in hand, you know? So, you know, like I, I don't, I don't sit down every day and pray the rosary, you right. know, but I do, I try to do some spiritual reading, you know, mystics or, you know, the, um, the gospel of the day or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But when I'm actually like my most attentive and my most dialogical with Jesus is when I'm like doing something like that. That's sure. It's not a, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. I'm just repeating it and doing it. And it just creates in me a space where I can try to be a little bit more open and just reflect on how I, you know, how I detach a little bit more from the things I need to detach from how it can be a little bit more open, understanding, compassionate. Yeah, I love that because I completely get what you're saying. I mean, it's strange, right? It's one of those yeah. things where like you like you get it, like you and I can talk about it, but you almost don't have the words to talk about it. Yeah. But you know from you, you're, you yourself experiencing it that what I'm saying is true, <laughs> you know? It's, it's totally true because that's yeah. exactly, I mean, like 
I think one of the hardest things I had to deal with as a priest was not having enough opportunities to do those types of things. It's like we're we're always in the front, you know, you're always kind of doing prescribed prayers and things like that, uh, liturgically based and all that. It's it, it's like yeah, that all has a place, but it can't be the only thing because uh, I'm not allowing myself to really understand who I uniquely am. I mean, the hmm. the liturgy kind of connects us with other people and does that, and I think in a very great way, at least you know, liturgy done well. Um, but to understand what my role is within the community happens in those mundane tasks where you're just really, you know, seeing what you're able to accomplish on your own and how that relates to what God is accomplishing within you. Totally. So I, I totally, totally get it. Um, well, we're almost at the end. So how about you just tell me about something that you may be, or that you're excited with, uh, with your work at America these days. Is, are there any projects that you're working on? There's a podcast that we make called Hark, the stories behind our favorite Christmas carols. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's honestly the production that I'm most proud of that, that we work on because it is so good. Like the quality of it is so good and the technical quality. Um, and it's also just magical because who doesn't love Christmas carols? We can all, right. you know, <laughs> name the ones that we're so nostalgic for, you know, from our childhood or whatever. And um, it, it's just my colleague, Maggie Van Dorn, it was her idea. And she tells like the story, the history of a particular carol, which are often fascinating and totally unpredictable. And then the second part of the show, she'll do like a music composition breakdown. So the tunes we all kind of know from (laughs) hearing them year after year after year, Mm -hmm. but she speaks to a musician about how they break down, what makes this particular composition so magical or, you know, special, whatever. And it's, you know, it's one of those pieces of content, you know, when you're like listening to a podcast or you're watching a video and you just like, you get goosebumps, yeah, you know, or like there's like something's pulling at your heart. Sure. This is the type of production where when you listen to it, I think, you know, you get goosebumps because it's just so beautiful, especially the the, the music, you know. So uh, yeah. Hark, that podcast, I'm, you know, we just finished our third season. It's an excellent show. I'm so proud of the team for putting it together. Um, so you can listen to it now or you can tune back in. Yeah. Advent 2024. <laughs> no, it's been yeah. really a powerful podcast. I mean, the, uh, we have teachers at my school who've been using it with their students, but the one on Oh Holy Night is a great episode, by the way. Yeah. That one really... Uh, that was the first episode of, of our 2023 season. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and what, what I, I a story I had no clue about, and it was so yeah. cool to learn. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll leave it that, at that. So hopefully people can tune yeah. in to at least listen to that episode and get a taste of Hark. Um, Sebastian, thank you so much. This has been a great time being with you, and I'm glad that we were able to do this. So um, maybe yeah, thanks, John. we'll do it again. Yeah. And, and let me just say thank you. Um, you know, you've been, you've been a good friend and, and just a, a person to kind of talk through these really deep and profound things with, uh, with me from time to time over the years that we've known each other since we kind of randomly, I guess I can't say randomly, providentially met in that <laughs> Brooklyn parish. Yeah. Uh, great. yeah. So I just, thanks for your, you know, your support, you know, your kindness, your generosity. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're on the mic because you have so much to share with the world. So thank you. That means so much, Sebastian. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, more projects together in the future. Definitely. Both of us. All right, my friend, be well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Attentive Heart Podcast. We hope that you were able to find it helpful in your spiritual journey and practice. 
This podcast is produced in collaboration with Sunday to Sunday Productions and The Witness Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and share it with friends.